Hey Bridgetown family, Tyler here with some very exciting and very important information. As of this moment, Super Early Bird registration is open for this year's Holy Spirit Conference for just $70. You can visit bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit for more information and to register. We are moving out of our venue as in our sanctuary and into a venue right in the heart of our city for this year's Holy Spirit Conference to make room for anyone and everyone who wants to attend as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So number one, I would say we're so excited to serve the Bridgetown family and those beyond our Bridgetown family who will gather with us for this catalytic event. And number two, I would say get registered early and go ahead and mark your calendars for January 26 and 27 when we will gather together in the name of the Spirit right in the heart of Portland. Hope to see you there. Our text this morning is Exodus 34 verses 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Such an honor to be before you again this morning. If you don't know, my name is Jonathan Tremaine. I am one of the leaders around here, but it's been a while since I've been in front of you. And uh, so I count it an honor to be able to stand and declare the mystery of God and explore the mystery of God with you today. Um, Let's just take 30 seconds and just close our eyes. Holy Spirit, wonderful counselor, comforter, the one who guides us into all truth. Would you come in greater measure now and lead us into fellowship with the sovereign one? Would you give us supernatural manifestation of the spirit of wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of God. Quicken our minds. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And may our hearts burn as you open your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever seen the the desert sky at night? 
beauty and wonder, majesty, mystery unfolding, unfurling before us. From horizon to horizon, we may look, but we can only look, not touch. And since the dawn of time, such a sight has put into the souls of men and women around the world an ache for more. That beauty and the ache that comes with it is a powerful, necessary, shaping force for anyone who would desire to know God. We have a theological responsibility to deliberately and regularly engage with beauty for multiple reasons. First, God is inherently beautiful. And the book of Exodus tells us that Moses' desire to see God was a hunger ultimately to look upon beauty. King David expressed the same longing in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Moses and David didn't just want to see the beauty. They, they wanted to see God. They knew that there was no greater beauty to see. And what I've just shared with you is not my own words, but rather the words of Russ Ramsey, who authored the book Rembrandt in the Wind. But the desire to see God is, in fact, at the root of all human pursuits. You and I were created for glory. Our senses, our skin, The ability to feel, a nose to smell, eyes to see, ears to perceive sound. Everything about us was created for fellowship with God. And so we possess an innate wiring. There's a hunger in us to pursue beauty, to pursue the closest connection to God that we can in whatever form. And so we tend to find new things or or create new things to find the wonder that we were originally designed with. Take, for example, a toddler. You spend several thousand dollars on the latest, greatest technology and innovation in toys and wonder, and they're most happy with a paperclip. (laughs) Somehow, little kids are able to find splendor and wonder in the simplest of things. We're hardwired. Ultimately, for the greatest wonder, which is God. This really brings us to the exploration of our text. Last week, we discussed God dwelling with us, the original blueprint of God, the blueprint of the tabernacle, uh, the building. We talked about the tabernacle being designed in three layers, all leading closer to God's presence. The, the courtyard, the outer court where all the people can go, the, the holy Place the inner court where only the priest can go, and then the Holy of Holies where only the high priest can go, but only once a year. Then we paralleled that with the mountain where Moses goes to meet with God, the low place of the mountain being the base where the people are, the middle portion of the mountain. Aaron can come up, but he can't go all the way up, so that represents the holy place where the priesthood is, and then you have the top of the mountain where only Moses can go, where he enters the cloud of God's presence. 
We are encouraged to consider this as an icon, not just to look at, but to look through. And as I was considering these things, I began to think about Moses entering the holy place, entering the presence of God. And I thought it was appropriate to think about power. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, think about power. Now, I know for some of you, that was very odd. You're not used to talking during church. But in case you forgot, I come from a tradition where we talk and we talk back. So just go ahead and loosen up. Get your, get your mouth. Sorry. No, that was ugly. What was that? It's like Jim Carrey out here. <clears throat> but let's, let's, let's think about power for a second, and particularly nuclear power, which is almost inarguably the single greatest power, concentrated power on earth. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, it is by far the most reliable and powerful energy source as nuclear power plants are able to produce maximum power 92% of the time with geothermal energy at a close 74 or not so close 74%. So in the event of a nuclear explosion, the thermal flash from one megaton can be many times brighter than the sun permanently blinding anyone within a 50-mile radius who is looking at that blast, and the thermal flash can cause severe burns or total disintegration to anyone within 20 to 25 miles of the explosion. We're talking about human power, right? We're, we're talking about humans who are created, creating the most powerful thing that humans can create, and it possesses that type of destructive force. Yet this type of power is scarcely a fraction of what is contained within one, one of God's fingers or maybe even one of his fingernails. In light of this, Moses is going on the mountain to meet with the power the source of all power. A.W. Tozer said, sovereignty and omnipotence must go together. One cannot exist without the other. To reign, God must not only have power, he must have all power in order to reign sovereignly. Now in the black church, I could do a whole sermon off of all power. He's got all power. It's just fun to say. But if Moses is meeting with that kind of power, how was he able to be in the presence of that power if we can't get within four million miles of the sun without disintegrating? How can he get face to face with God and live? My friend Alan Hood said, some of us are worried about the issue of knowing God, but God has an issue and that issue is keeping us alive in knowing him. So we need God's mercy to know him. We need God's mercy to even stay alive in his presence. To draw near to him, it takes God. So God provides us with what I would like to present as three mercies of veiled glory. And the first mercy of veiled glory is the cloud. Somebody say the cloud. The, cloud. the second mercy is the cleft. Say the cleft. 
And the third mercy is the bat. Say the bat. Looking at the cloud, I would present to you that the cloud is when God hides from Moses. In Exodus 33, we see in verse 9, Moses went into the tent. The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. While the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then we see in the beginning of Moses' fellowship with God on the mountain in Exodus 34, verse 5, it says that the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And as God descends in the cloud before Moses, he's proclaiming his attributes, his goodness to Moses. And this is after Moses has said, please show me your glory. God's goodness is his glory. And in goodness, he cloaked himself in a cloud so that Moses could stay alive. Now, 1 Timothy 6 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This passage describes God as dwelling in unapproachable light, kind of like the sun. But 1 John 1 takes it another step and it says, this is the message which we have heard from him and now declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So Moses is meeting with the one who not only dwells in unapproachable light, but is light itself. So God hides and cloaks and veils his glory in a cloud. Secondly, the cleft. It goes from when God hides to when God hides Moses. In verse 19, verse 18 of Exodus, 33, he says, please show me your glory. This is the longing and the groaning of Moses and the longing and the groaning of humanity. Show me your glory. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things. And then he says, God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. So we get to verse 22. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand while I pass by. Out of the goodness of God, God places Moses into a place of safety and covers him while he passes by. Hidden in God, covered by his hand. And then final mercy of veil glory is in verse 23 when he says, when I take my hand away, You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see, it's the kindness of God that although we desire to see his face, sometimes he shows you his back. Jesus continues the invitation in the New Testament 
as he's recruiting the disciples by saying, follow me. It's the marquee of his leadership to give you not what you think you want, but what will keep you alive. Because what happens is he gives you, he gives Moses his back as a, almost like as a, a prophetic foreshadowing of the fact that one day you will see me face to face. One day I'm going to send myself in the form of flesh and blood. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show the whole earth my glory as they follow me, as they look at my back. Then Satan, thinking he has some kind of power, is like, why don't you just bow down to me and I'll give you the earth. And God does the ultimate flex, just as he flexed his back to Moses and kept Moses alive. uh, alive, He turns and he goes, Satan, get behind me. You think you have the authority to see my face? You think I'm going to put my face down and worship you? You better get behind me. Look at my back. Even the demons have to see the glory of his back. So Moses comes down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, which is The centerpiece of the text as we're closing out this series in Exodus. And he comes down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand. And when he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. He didn't know. Now, this has never happened to me because you can see what color I am. But I've heard word on the street is that you can still get a sunburn on a cloudy day. Is that true? Do I have a witness? Okay, good, good. So, so I heard that you can get a sunburn. Now, I'm not experiencing it. I'm trying to get as black as I can be. But I've I just never gotten a sunburn. But Moses has been in the presence of light itself, but the presence of light was covered in a cloud, yet he comes down with the glow on his face. He had a, a God burn. The radioactive fallout of the glory of God is now upon Moses' skin, unbeknownst to him. He don't know that his soul is glowing. Anybody know from the the 70s funk era, era, there was a a show called Soul Train. They'd be like, you got to let your soul glow. Moses is a human absorbing light and power from the source of all creation, and the electrons in the atoms of Moses' skin are now at an elevated or an excited state. The glory of God is radiating from his countenance because, as Cicero said, the countenance is the portrait of the soul. So Moses not only has been in the presence of God, but he's now phosphorescent. Phosphorescence is the phenomenon of delayed luminescence that corresponds to the radiative decay of the molecular triplet state. Let's just acknowledge that I have no idea what I just said. But I'd like to continue on as though I'm like, you know, really smart. Uh, What that basically means on the street, the street level, not the street, the street, that's how we say it in the hood, is that means glow in the dark. Yeah, 
Now, how many of you remember that back in the day when you wanted to see something wondrous? Because remember how I started the message with the desert sky and the beautiful expanse? When you were a little kid, you wanted to recreate that, so your mom and them got you some glow-in-the-dark uh, stickers, right? You put them on the ceiling, and like every night, you know, your, your parents have to put you to bed three to four times. I, if I have to tell you to go to bed one more time. But that night, everybody wanted to go to bed, right? You want to see what the ceiling looks like in the dark. I couldn't wait for it to get dark. And so I'm up there and I'm watching the ceiling glow for about five minutes. How many of you remember, can recall the disappointment? Sorry, not to, not to open up any wounds here. But what's interesting in the science of glow-in-the-dark objects is that Actually, every created object, every molecular object actually is glowing in the dark for about 10 nanoseconds. Glowing in the dark is literally absorbing or, or receiving light. The electrons get elevated and then they re-emit the light as they're returning to a ground state. And once they hit the ground state, they no longer glow. So the technology behind glowing in the dark is that they're able to add more atoms and pack it in a concentrated way to make it impossible to, to pass through what scientifically is called a forbidden state. When, when, when the electrons enter a forbidden state, it then loses its luminescence. Now, I'm one of those dudes that I can see a bottle of ketchup and turn it into a sermon. I could just stay right there and start preaching, but we're going we're to move on. Just hold that. Hold that thought. But it's interesting to me that God set up laws within quantum mechanics as it relates to atoms and electrons that make it difficult to enter the forbidden state. So Moses goes to the mountain with the source of light, which, as you can recall, in the beginning, Genesis, God said, let there be Light is the foundational desire of God and the principle for which the worlds are beginning to, to, to be created. And so he goes up there to meet with light itself, and God is now giving him the commandments as almost like the cosmic uh, scientific parameters, the governing laws for keeping humanity, getting humanity out of her forbidden state in order to enter into an elevated realm of fellowship with God and for Israel to dwell with him in the light. So there he was in verse 28 with the Lord, 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't have to eat because Deuteronomy says man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth, Mo out of the mouth of God. Moses is, is inscribing on the tablets the words of life, and so therefore he didn't need water, he didn't need food, he was being sustained in the presence of God. In the presence of God is fullness of joy and life forevermore. All you need is the presence of God. But 2 Corinthians says, that Moses was not receiving just the ministry of life. It says this in verse 7, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. 
How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Moses wasn't just like, well, my face is so bright, so let me put this on because I care about your eyes. He was embarrassed. He was like, you know what? This glory is fading. And I don't want them to get discouraged when they see my face isn't glowing anymore. Let me cover this up. But it says in that same passage, whenever he would come before the Lord, he would take the veil off and he would look unveiled before, at God. And then he would come back before the people and put a veil back up. See, the ministry of death engraved on the stones through the law caused outward behavioral modification, but it could not produce a righteousness on the inside. And that ultimately led to failure, which led to condemnation. The law versus the spirit. See, the law leads to a striving, a, a works-based holiness, a glory that only goes skin deep, trying to keep the law without access to the power source. Now, there's a three-layer framework here that helps us understand this a little bit better. Just as we were talking about the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies, our spiritual man, our bodies, and our souls are also the tabernacle of the Lord. And the body is the outer court. The, the law dealt with the body, the, the modification of behavior on the outside. But Jesus then comes as a solution. God's solution is to make the human spirit the seat of the Holy Spirit. The Holy of Holies is now on the inside of us. And the soul is the inner court. Thus, through the finished work of the cross, he makes the inner sanctuary of our anatomy the holy, holy, the holy of holies. Watchman Nee said it this way, God dwells in the spirit and the self dwells in the soul and the senses dwell in the body. Jesus is the game changer. The old covenant law deals with the body. Body modification leads to failure and condemnation. The new covenant through the spirit of God comes inside of us and transforms our way of being in the world, our way of thinking. We're justified now, not by the sprinkled blood of, of slain bulls and goats and lambs, but by the blood of Jesus. And then Jesus takes us from modification and condemnation. He removes our sin and our shame. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He teaches us how to live and walk in life by the Spirit. And then we go from transformation, from condemnation, to transformation and from transformation to transfiguration. What does that mean? 2 Corinthians says it this way. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, 
with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, Psalm 115.8 says that those who make idols will become like them. Those who look at idols will become like what you're looking at. And this passage says that the Lord is the Spirit. Romans has told us that we no longer live by the law, but we live and are justified by faith through Christ and in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. Life and holiness and blamelessness by the Spirit is now our inheritance. Now the nuclear power of the universe has not decided to live in a tabernacle made by human hands or on a mountain that cannot be approached. The Holy Spirit, the nuclear atomic force, the hurricane force of God has chosen up to take up residence inside of me and I am being transformed from the inside out. And what's happening here He says, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, when we look at the glory of God, it's like looking into a mirror. If you can remember, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And in light of seeing God, he sees himself. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. The glory of God in the face of Isaiah Isaiah allows him the grace to actually see himself for who he really is and where he really is. But Jesus comes and says, not only will you look at me and behold my glory and see yourself, but I want you to know that I am beholding you. And when I look at you, I don't see what you used to be or where you currently are. I see what I created you to be. So the glory of God now is a mirror, not just for what you look like this morning, although y'all look cute, some of y'all look real cute. The mirror is God beginning to unveil to you the glory of himself deposited within you. You see, in Matthew 17, the account is also in Luke of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John to the same mountain where Moses received the law, Mount Horeb, which is also known and believed to be Mount Sinai. This is also the place where Elijah experienced the glory of God as he passed by. And so, In Matthew 17, it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter answered and said, Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, 
let me recount this with a little bit more emotion because I'm an emotional guy. The very thing that Moses longed for, show me your glory. The very thing that Elijah longed for. The very thing that all of creation is even groaning for at this hour. Jesus brings them to the very same place where he was once with Moses in a, in a cloud, veiled, unseen, hidden in the cloud, near, but not fully exposed. He brings Peter, James, and John with him to the same place, and he's in another cloud, except the cloud is human flesh. The glory of God, the fullness of heaven is with them, and he comes up on the mountain and he goes, let me take my clothes off real quick. Power and light begin to beam from him. His skin turns into this whatever it looks like, right? And they're there. And Peter and James and John are looking with an unveiled face and they're not dead. They're looking at God. On top of it, he says, hey, yo, Moses, Elijah, what y'all doing? I'm, I'm going to show my disciples something. Let's, let's have a chat, and I'm going to be fully unveiled. Oh, yeah, and since now you're, you're in the heavenly realms with me, you can come in your heavenly clothes too. They're looking into the desire of all nations. They're looking into the primordial cry inside of us to see and behold the glory of God with unveiled faces. And he says, you know what? The reason why I'm showing the disciples this is because it's not time yet. See, see what happened was Peter, James, and John, they were like, yo, we're good. We have never been in a church service like this, and this is banging. This one right here is a banger. So let's just go ahead and build a church. Let's build, we'll build three tabernacles. We don't even need one. We'll do one for you, Moses, one for Elijah, and for Jesus. We'll, we'll just stay right here. But Jesus tells them, he says, no, 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 it's not time yet. He had to keep the gospel veiled for just a little bit because there was still work to be done. Jesus still needed to go to the cross and carry the sins of humanity. He still needed to fulfill the law that the ministry of condemnation could not bring. He still had to come and take death to the cross and say, you know what? I will fulfill all the law and commandments in my own flesh. And so on the cross, when he breathes his last breath, all of a sudden power is released and the veil in the temple is torn and the veil between heaven's intentions and earth's darkness and brokenness is ripped and, uh, and the veil between Jew and Gentile and slave and free and black and white, uh, all, the, all the division and the tension that is a result of sin is suddenly ripped apart. Condemnation is destroyed in that moment. Then he says, now, Peter, James, and John, now go to the ends of the earth and tell everybody. Don't just tell them what you've been. Tell them what you're going to. Tell them what you saw. That in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, what you saw is what you're becoming. We have a phrase that says, praise God, I don't look like what I've been through. 
Praise God, I don't, I don't, I am not what I used to be, and I'm not where I'm going to be. It says those who follow Jesus go from glory to glory and strength to strength. And beloved, this morning, we've not come to Mount Sinai. We've not come to a mountain that may be touched, that burn with fire, to blackness and darkness and the tempest, as Hebrews 12 says. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that that speaks better things than that of Abel. You see, remember that paint I was telling you about, that that glow, the glowiest glow, this, this paint that glows actually for 12 hours, this phosphorescent paint that's just come out. And it can glow for 12 hours because they packed all these atoms on the inside of it to keep it from entering the forbidden state sooner and losing its glow. There's a second atom, the atom, the second atom of Jesus Christ that now is not a law from the outside, but it's the law on the inside that's, that's a, that light is being generated on the inside that we might radiate with the glory of God in an unfading reality. This is Colossians 1 saying, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is good news because it means it's much harder for us to enter the forbidden state. But unfortunately, we have a tendency to, like Moses, to cover our faces when we do enter the forbidden state. I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about the human condition. Do you cover your face when you talk to God? Do you put a veil over your face before humanity? Isaiah 3 says that our countenances witness and testify against us. You see, I know for me that if I have a, a failure, it can be really difficult to even want to be around the church. Or, Man, you know, I messed up again last night. I guess I won't go tomorrow morning because you just, you feel disgusting. There's that condemnation that comes when you pass through the forbidden state. There's this sense of self-deprecation. And it makes us want to just punish ourselves or put our heads down and not make eye contact with anybody. Man, maybe if I see Gerald, he'll see the the darkness in me. He'll see that there's something that's not right. Uh, uh, So I'll go to church when I feel good. I'll go to community group when I've I've had a good week. But but otherwise, I I just don't want to bring other people down. And the enemy comes in to cause us to, to, when we get before the Lord, to veil our faces or to not go before the Lord at all. Well, I, I, I talk to people on the streets and they're like, yeah, me and God, I'll get right with God. I'm working on it. I'll get right with God when, you know, when, uh, 
when me and him, when we're on good terms, you know what I'm saying? Like we have an agreement right now and it's just not, it's just not time for me. No, no. Psalm 33 says, you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. God is a shield. Sometimes he hides us in him, and he covers us. He says, I'll be a shield for you. Even in our brokenness, even in our weakness, in our barrenness, God was at work in your life, keeping you alive so that you would not die in your darkness. He comes after us. But the question is, can we see the glory within the cloud? Can you behold in the time of darkness in your life or if you're seeking God, but you're like, I want to see your face, but I'm just not experiencing you right now. Do you have the capacity to discern that he is within the cloud, that he is present? My friend Corey Russell says so many believers spend the majority of their lives despising their bodies, hating the very design of their frame. And it's our bodies that have been fearfully and wonderfully made to contain the glory of God. You see, the glory of God is on the inside of us. It's a wonder that we don't explode because we are carrying around God on the inside. And yet some of us have been so beat down by the forbidden state that the enemy is saying, you're you're ugly, you're not good enough, you're too weak, you're too broken, you're a nerd, you're a dork, you're a this, you're a that, and the enemy is in your ear telling you lies about your body image, got you with eating disorders and all kinds of things, feeling depressed, feeling uh, despised, feeling rejected, medicating to try to deal with with the, uh, the, the insanity of your condition. Oh, if I could just look better, if I could just look like her, if I could just get the promotion, if I could just buy that house, man, if I could just get married, if I could just be loved, and you don't understand that God is beholding you and he's going, you are my prize possession. I want to live with you and I want to live in you. Some of you are like, man, this is too loud. I wish you would just talk a little softer. I'm here to tell you, I'm here to just to swing the bat. We got to knock some lies out today. Is that okay? Second Corinthians 3 17 says the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Oh, y'all got to say it a little bit louder. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is. Now put your hands together like somebody's free in the house today. Come on, give them a, a clap of praise. Is anybody free today? God wants us to cease from our dead works. We were made for Sabbath. We must enter into the rest of God and enter into the freedom of God. And it is freeing to know that it's not you, it's Christ in you. The hope, somebody say hope, Hope. of glory. You and I were made for glory. You become like what you behold. And God has made you 
and created and fulfilled all the law and the commandments and the conditions for us to behold him with unveiled faces. You don't have to come in here with shame. You don't have to carry around the guilt and the pain. You were made for wonder. You in the balcony were made for communion. You were made for fellowship with God. Psalm 84 says, blessed is a man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca or trouble or weeping, they make it a spring. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Robert Murray McShane said, a beam of God's countenance is enough to fill the heart of a believer to overflowing. It's enough to light up the pale cheek of a dying saint with serific brightness and make the heart of the lone widow sing for joy. John the Baptist was called a burning and a shining lamp. You and I were made to burn and to shine. And in the same way, Moses covered his face before the people because of shame. He didn't want them to see what was fading. Jesus flips it on the head in Matthew 5 and says, in the same way, let your light shine before all men. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You and I are the radiant ones. We were created for glory and we were created to radiate his glory. And I believe today that there's a measure of glory that he wants to release in us and through us. Even this morning, just being in his presence, it doesn't have to be emotional. Just being in his presence changes our countenance. That when we walk out of here, people in Portland see us and go, whoa, what? why do you look different? Like, what is that? When you go to work, uh, there's something about them. I don't know what it is, but they just seem so, I don't know, happy. <laughs> there's like a joy. There's something radiant. There's an incense and a fragrance that God wants to release on us. And it begins even now.